I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One of the strangest general election campaigns of the last two years is drawing to a close. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I'm sorry, we have to stop you there. Thank you very much indeed. But I've got so much more to say. A lacklustre Tory campaign led by a complacent Prime Minister has been rocked to its core by an energised Labour leader. Labour has secured the all-important Russell Brand endorsement and it is rising in the polls. It's no exaggeration to say that by the time you hear this, there's a strong chance that Ed Miliband will be Prime Minister. Wait a minute. Let me check my iPad. So how much will it cost? I'll give you the figure in a moment. You don't know it? Um... Hello and welcome to the New Statesman Deep Dive, the politics podcast that explores the ideas behind the news. I'm Ian Leslie, and as usual, I'm here with Stuart Wood. Hello, Stuart. Hello, Ian. Today is the last show we do before the, the election, so we're going to be talking a bit about the campaign with, with a focus on the stark generational divide between older voters and younger voters, like uh, like ourselves, um, with the help of an expert guest. Our, and our guest this week is Professor Rosie Campbell. I'll introduce her in a minute. Before we start, I just want to ask a favour of you, the listener. When you get a few seconds, please open iTunes on your desktop and give us a rating, leave a review, preferably a nice one. Um, and please share this with your friends on social media uh, and your enemies. We're still gathering an audience and this stuff really makes a difference. So, uh, so thank you in advance for doing that. Anyway, Stuart, how would you compare this campaign to 2015? Well, it's a weird one, this one. In a way, the themes are quite similar. The Tories are running messages which are eerily familiar from two years ago. Strong and stable rings a bell. Coalition of chaos rings a bell. But the, the difference is that I think what we didn't realise was Theresa May is still an unknown person for the British public. I think we thought we knew her a bit because of Brexit, and she sees the mantle very very well, I thought, for the first eight months. But when you have an election campaign, which A, is not necessary, you call it yourself, and B, is focused so overwhelmingly on you, the leader, you have to be sure that the public knows who you are. If you're asking for the people's trust, you better be sure that people know that you're trustable. And the first moment of character revelation we had, apart from Brexit in the campaign, was frankly a disaster for her, which was the manifesto. And social care has become this parable for poor judgment, indecision, 
And in a character-based election pitch, that is a catastrophe for them. So that, I think, is what's gone wrong so badly for them. It's probably not going to lose them the election, let's face it. But nevertheless, that's what's new and different about this. Also, th- just, just her, her sheer um, apparent, uh, almost, well, physical discomfort with campaigning. Yeah, she- I mean, it's actually quite... I mean, I'm actually starting to feel sorry for her because she's clearly not enjoying this at all can't wait for it to be over um and and if you if you are presenting yourself as the stable calm strong figure you know again that's really a discordant yeah she doesn't look comfortable in her skin that's absolutely right um on the Labour side, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn has benefited from expectations being, you know, in the basement at the beginning of the election. And he's also been lucky, um, but he's taken advantage of his luck pretty well. I mean, the leak of the manifesto worked like a dream for him, whether it was deliberate or accidental, we don't know. But it had about the effect of six or seven days coverage of what looked like a very authentic Jeremy Corbyn manifesto. When I look back at 2015, I was involved with Ed Miliband's campaign, obviously. We suffered from a manifesto that didn't quite match the radicalism and character of Ed. It looked a bit like it was trying to keep everyone happy. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn's got a sort of flag in the ground manifesto. I can be no other than this. This is who I am. And that has worked for him, even amongst people who don't like his politics. I think that, so he's turned his authenticity and his consistency of ideology into a virtue in this election. And I think the attacks on him, fascinating, the attacks on him, I suspect haven't worked anywhere near as well as the Tories thought they would. Particularly things like the IRA. I think for under 40s, that doesn't work but for all sorts it, of historical well, reasons. I mean, we'll see. Um, and I might be wrong. For, and, and of course, you know, the over 40s play a bigger part than the under 40s, as we'll get on to. Um, perhaps it does cut through with them, but um, I suspect it doesn't hurt him as much as it has hurt previous Labour leaders. Uh, just because of the historical distance from from uh, that era. No, I think that's right. And then, of course, the the third thing you've got, which is an electorate. I mean, we're all sort of slightly sweating bullets because none of us really know the electorate anymore. Um, We uh, are... Our our guest does as well. Our guest fortunately knows the electorate back to front and we'll we'll talk to her in a minute. But all of us are puzzling about... I mean, the polls, the variation in the polls is staggering partly to do with no one really knows who's going to show up. If young people show up and express the views that they express to pollsters at the ballot box, then we could have an extraordinary result. If old people don't show up, older people don't show up because they're upset about the social care stuff of the Tories, uh, then we could also have an upset of some description. But no one really knows that. But what's fascinating, we have a Brexit election, which Brexit is not being discussed. And one of the great rules of politics is that economics determines people's votes. Economics is almost completely absent from the political debate at the moment. It's quite extraordinary. So uh, there are lots of question marks about how the electorate's going to behave and how we understand the electorate, which I think is... Actually, you touched on something which I thought the other day, which which is that... Actually, this would be an incredibly boring campaign if it weren't for the polls. I mean, (laughs) if we we weren't seeing the polls go, you know, uh, undergo such big fluctuations, then there'd be really uh, not much going on at all. Um, Which brings us uh, nicely to our expert guest today, Professor Rosie Campbell of Birkbeck College. Hello, Rosie. Hello. I'm slightly worried that I've been described as someone who understands the electorate perfectly. Clarity will, will follow in the next 15 minutes. Thanks, Rosie. Appreciate it. Nobody understands the electorate perfectly, but, but uh, you come as, as close as we, we could possibly get to, to somebody who does understand them. Um, so Rosie is a professor of politics at Birkbeck, part of the University of London. She has a particular interest in the relationship between the political classes and the voters and how that has changed, which is fascinating in itself, maybe a topic for a whole other show. 
Today, however, we'd like to take advantage of Rosie's incredible knowledge of British voting patterns to look at one of the most important divides in politics today, old versus young. But before we do that, let's just spend a minute talking about the campaign in general and, and those poll swings. And one note here, we record the show a few days in advance, so and normally it doesn't make much of a difference because we float so far above the petty concerns of day-to-day politics, um, or so far beneath it, I guess, with the deep dive. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, it doesn't matter, but the, there's an election on, so it kind of seems silly not to, to have that as part of our discussion. Um, but while we're trying to discuss what's going on in broad terms, there may be things that happen after we talk that, that uh, affect uh, what we're talking about. Anyway, Rosie, what kind of result did you expect at the start of this campaign? Well, and has your expectation been changed by what's happened since? I think anybody who was used to talking about the polls in the last election was very, very cautious at the beginning. And I was, well, you know, all of the polls were, seemed to be in the same direction with a really substantial advantage to the Conservatives. If they carry on as they are, huge caveat, we would expect to see a massive Conservative majority. I'm so glad I used all those caveats. The <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indispensable friend of the academic. <laughs> Indeed. But of course, it's changed. To the extent it's changed is really, really unknown, I think, because you know, the Conservatives still have a lead in all the polls, but the size of that lead really depends on the pollster and their surveying methodology. Um, and a lot of that is around what young people are going to do. You know, young people are massively more Labour than the older people, people under 35. And they're also the group that turns out and votes least, particularly 18 to 24-year-olds. And how the pollsters are dealing with that is having a big effect on what might happen in terms of the size of any Conservative majority, or, or some of them suggesting whether there is one. I remember when I worked for Ed Miliband, we had a presentation before the 2015 election in Shadow Cabinet. And I was late, I walked in and uh, I sat next to Michael Duggar and said, uh, how's, how's it going? And he said, oh, we're doing really well amongst people who aren't going to vote. Uh, is, I mean, is that one of the great iron rules of politics, that young people just don't show up and that we should really, we're dreaming if we think that can change in one election? Well, I don't think it is, in that if you look at the EU referendum, some of the early reports were suggesting young people hadn't turned out, but actually the later figures showed that it was, it was actually a pretty good turnout. Oh, really? Yeah, but coming up to 60s. Right. Um, it depends, there's no absolute figure that you can get hold of, it depends on, the, depends on the source, but it looks as if there was quite a good turnout, which makes sense if you've got a high turnout election. The same in the Scottish referendum, you get a, a good turnout. Um, and I think that's that's what we sometimes forget, that if you have high turnout elections, if you've got 80-odd percent of population voting, there's not much room for a difference between the ages. We're not going to get to 80%. No. And as you get down to a lower turnout election, there's, the predictors of turnout you're going to see more variation. So okay. you'll see more variation between old people and young people, more variation between people with different levels of qualification, et cetera, et cetera. So you see a bigger gap. So the size of the turnout overall is really critical. So if we get to EU referendum turnout levels, actually we would see a substantial number of young people voting. But how close the race is is going to matter for that. It's looking closer. Maybe we get more young people so voting. So turnout is higher when races are closer. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you go back to 2001, when turnout really fell off a cliff. So in most of the, well, in all of the post-war period, turnout was above 70% of the population. You get to 2001, suddenly it's 59%. 
Labour had been in power for some time. It was Everyone knew it was going to be a Labour government. Turnout drops to 59%. Then we see in recent years, turnout's gone up ever so slightly because the elections have been a bit closer. So early in this election, we'd have expected a really turnout, low turnout election. Now I don't know. <laughs> That's really interesting. OK, so the polls really do matter in that sense. And absolutely that, that, massively. Yeah. Uh, your, your point at the beginning that they've shaped the campaign is absolutely right. To the extent that people are following the election, they're hearing this narrative around... Does it matter whether I vote or not? And the more likely they're to think actually it can make a difference, the more likely they are to vote. Before we look at what young people like myself... Uh, oh, right. Sorry, I'm, I'm <laughs> that sure, young I'm not, too. What a delight. Sorry, I'm not sure I merited that reaction <laughs> with that remark. Um, I'll, let's move swiftly on. Before young people like myself, uh, we talk about what young people want uh, politically. Um, what, what factors do affect turnout, apart, particularly amongst younger voters, apart from the closeness of the race? Do we have any sense of that? Well, it's the same predictors as for other groups. So um, how educated you are, how wealthy you are, are predictors for young people and old people alike. Um, but the big difference between old and young is this civic duty. Once you get into the over 65s particularly, almost everyone has this sense of a civic duty to vote. That's much less common amongst younger groups. There's much more a sense of, well, is it worth it? And, okay. and politicians tend to think in tr quite traditional terms about appealing to voters. They think old people want benefits for old people, subsidies for care, etc. And young people want free tuition fees and goodies galore. Is that... Is that broadly speaking borne out by the evidence? Is is a do younger people warm to parties that give them more spending stuff? I think that there's some truth in that. Obviously, the parties spend a lot of time and energy targeting voters, and it does make a difference in the margins. But the grand narrative, I think, is much more important. And if you look, you know, as long as we've been doing polls, younger people have been more left-wing. And actually, there is a slight life cycle effect. As people get older, they become more right-wing. And I don't think that's just about what the parties offer. That's about ideology and idealism that we all tend to be, when we're young like you, more idealistic. Thank you very much. <laughs> that's how you stay young, isn't it? <laughs> I find having children has made me more left wing, not right wing. But that's right. Do you have girls? Probably quite unusual. No, I have that. boys, but oh. I just think I just think there, but for the grace of God, go I much more about other people's suffering, and that makes me more there's communitarian. Some, there's some really interesting research saying that fathers of girls are more left wing than fathers of boys. Oh, so if you had daughters, perhaps you'd be way off the spectrum. Yeah, Ian would mean speak to me. Yes, <laughs> that is the yeah, yeah. So no, that's it is interesting. So so why might that be? Um, I think it's because of the fact that. We still, although we've got much more gender equality in society, we still have a world that is, you know, not equal. And so it, state intervention in things like the ch childcare, um, if you've got daughters, you're more likely to think that's going to benefit them in the future. OK, I have an alternative hypothesis okay, off, the top, off the top of my head. Okay. So it's almost certainly nonsense, which is that... Um, because men feel that that girls girls bring out their protective instinct mm -hmm. in, even more than than boys, um, that triggers their kind of need for uh, authority, order, that should stability, push them to the right, though. which is oh sorry, I thought you said that they did no, oh, girls, the other way around. Girls, push, girls right. push fathers to the left. Oh, I can yeah. just reveal why he's moved radically to the right <laughs> in the last ten years. <laughs> Exactly. Give myself away here. But what about Brexit with young younger voters? Is there any evidence that there is a sort of latent revolution brewing about anger at the Brexit vote, or is I that is that wishful thinking all, by Remainers? I think there was a sense that that might be the case at the beginning of the election. Certainly among the Lib Dems. I was going to say the Lib Dems have hung their whole campaign on that, but actually, you know, the hardcore of really serious Remainers in the total population is about twenty two percent. Now that would be a larger group amongst young people, but it isn't the single mo most motivating factor. So, but I do think that instead of it being simply about Brexit, you know, we all know that young younger people 
life is more difficult, especially in the southeast, than it has been for other generations, housing costs, etc., university tuition fees and so on, that there could be a sort of sense of bashing the older generation. Um, and that might relate to um, Brexit in reverse. Yeah. What, you, you, you think they, they think that the older generation has sort of screwed them over, so they're like, well, we're going to screw you over back by yeah, voting, think, for Jeremy, voting for a 68-year-old man? Well, it's an interesting idea that whether the, the Brexit referendum was, was two fingers up to the country on behalf of over 55s, and could this election be two fingers up to the country on behalf of under 35s? I mean, it could happen. We don't want to get carried away, no. but if, if we look at the polls, if those 18 to 24-year-olds, and we know that a million of them have registered since um, the election was announced, if they do go and turn out and vote, it could really shift the dynamics of the election. So okay. that bloody nose could come but, along. But is there, is there, are there other kind of, is there a distributional issue here? Like, are, are these, all these uh, Labour-leaning young voters, are they concentrated in Labour-leaning seats already. I mean, is, is there a problem that of Labour piling up those votes in places where it doesn't need I, I haven't seen evidence of that. It's okay. a generational divide across the country. Um, but obviously, 18 to 24-year-olds are a small group of the population, you know, so it's perfectly rational to target the the ballooning older population. But in some critical marginal receipts, I've seen some analysis saying that perhaps on EU referendum turnout levels, there would be about 40 marginal seats that actually could go Labour's way if young people turn up and vote the way they did last year. Really? Wow, yes. that's extraordinary. That's fascinating, isn't it? Isn't it? Um, and how does it intersect with education? Because that, that's one of the, if not the kind of key divide, isn't it? Well, I mean, education is a really significant predictor of party support, whatever generation. So um, the more educated you are, the more likely, for example, you are to support the Liberal Democrats. You see conservative support softening. But we also know that there's a significant education pattern in by age groups. So when you get into younger age groups, you've got many, many more people university educated. So that is also part of what's driving that difference, but not all of it. I read somewhere that the best predictor of how you voted in the Brexit referendum was whether you'd been to a museum in the last three months or six months or something. I, like. I thought it was whether or not you supported capital punishment. I was going to say. Yeah. It, we well, do have <laughs> these things clustered together. But what yeah. about older voters? What, what, I mean, one of the things I think I worry about in this election is that whatever you think of Theresa May and the Conservatives, they have tried to challenge something that has been unchallenged for a long time, which is the idea that you can't cut benefits and support for older voters. And from a welfare state sustainability point of view, that probably has to be done, whatever your politics. But the, but the spectacular reaction against it, I worry, is going to warn off any party from challenging this in the next 10 years, left or right. Do you think, is there, is there a danger that the older voters are sort of more secure in their... In, in their in their expectation that parties can't challenge the benefits they've been given historically after this. I mean, I was absolutely astounded by that decision. And I, at the time, wondered, is this brave or foolhardy? And I think we probably have all come to the conclusion in the end that it was foolhardy. Um, but I don't think the reaction against it was just from older people. It was also mm, a sense that well, this yeah. is what the Conservatives are about. They, you know, they're about making, reducing the state or making us, um, making us pay for our own care. But I do think... It, it, it could. It's a. It sends a very strong. It was. It was very, very surprising that she would do that to her core vote. And I can only think it's because she thought she might have trouble passing legislation, and she thought that she had got was going to get such a strong majority. We should mention this now. I think that was 
absolute madness and they should have just quietly put it through after they were elected. I think you're right. It's, it, the problem is it spoke to an ancient central truth yes. that people suspected about the Conservatives, isn't it? Which, funnily enough, Theresa May was one of the first Tories to recognise back in the day with the nasty party characterisation. Right. I mean, and it, it, just, it just revived it like Lazarus, didn't it, overnight? Although it was actually, yeah. in some ways, a very redist redistributive policy. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were, it's very odd to just redistribute people from people who've got dementia rather than other kinds of problems. You know, okay. so it, but, but at least there was an attempt to, to grapple with it. I mean, the, yeah. the problem is that they didn't really get their story straight. So they, they didn't really, they couldn't commit to it fully. You know, so once it came under a bit of attack, they, they, they crumbled, which yes. obviously, yes. You know, again, is discordant with the, the whole message of the campaign. Uh, what about, more broadly, the idea that class is disappearing as a factor in politics and that we've got these new cleavages, age, education, as you say, maybe even geography. I mean, wealthy people in cities seem to vote more left-wing than wealthy people in the countryside. So do we have, do we have a, a much more diverse set of predictors about how people can vote now, or is that overstated? That is not overstated at all. If you go back to um, the early 1990s and before, you could really fairly reliably predict which party, one of the two parties, um, you're going to vote for from your self-stated class, I'm working class, I'm middle class. That's much less useful than it used to be. Um, and in fact, I think we've got to this situation now where we're still trying to use that, those old models of explanation, but we're in this massive period of flux. We know education and age matter, but actually people are much less loyal to the parties. So although there's been a sort of return to the two main parties, there's a lot of movement. That's what we're seeing in the polls. So I think last election, everyone said, oh, it's the end of the two-party system. We're now going to have multi-party system. And now everyone's saying, oh, maybe it's return. I think that's hiding the fact that underneath it all, the electorate have changed and you can't rely on them. They're going to they're gonna change their minds. Yeah, yeah. You can't rely on them. I think it's a really Bloody interesting point. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think one of the interesting things about that is that uh, all these analyses that, that kind of posit some big, long-term, deep structural change in the balance of power between the parties are just inherently suspect, right? Um, and so, you know, the one we heard a lot recently is that Labour the Labour Party is is screwed long term, right? Corbyn or not, they are just they have you know they're completely torn between these different constituencies. Their their traditional constituencies has left them. It seems to me that you can't make that kind of prediction with any confidence anymore because there's just less stability and as you say, it's not rooted in in economics in the way in the way or class as it as it used to be. So uh, it's a it's more volatile than we think. I, I think this, this idea of the, the, the fragmenting electorate and the multiple factors that determine people's votes, I, I'm torn about what it means for parties. Because on the one hand, you might think, well, the idea of there just being a two-party system doesn't make sense anymore when you've got such a fragmented electorate. But on the other hand, what you want is parties that, that don't just segregate along the lines of the electorate. You actually want them to be in the business of unifying people across ages, across geography and across educational levels. And... So maybe the two-party system should come into its own now rather than That's of quite possible. And I think, you know, our first-past-the-post electoral system really encourages that because if you're a voter in a marginal constituency, you will look at most of... You know, people are much less loyal to parties now, but they still tend to know who they don't like, which bugger they don't want to allow in. And uh, so that means that you will try and vote strategically rather than your first-choice party, and that tends to push us towards... If not, it's not really a two-party system because obviously SNP in Scotland and so on, but at least in regional areas, competing two parties rather than multiple parties. I, 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 that's interesting. I mean, I feel that is instinctively true. And I did think even when um, before, before the campaign, when people were saying Labour Party is just, you know, on, on its last legs, my sort of intuition is that people 
expect uh, and want a kind of two-party game where the Tories are one of the parties and then there's the other lot, right? Or it could be the other way around. But but there's there's you know there's basically the default party and then there's like oh well when we don't like them we'll choose the the other ones who are slightly over there. And if it starts getting more complicated than that, then people just don't tune out. So you know I think there will always be room for the main alternative unless another party rises which somehow displaces Labour, which is incredibly difficult under our system. So. But that raises this question of that the, one of the extraordinary things, at least of the polls are to be believed, is the return of strong two parties in this election. I mean, the, the two parties look on course to get percentage of the vote we haven't seen for a long, long time. What's going on there? I don't know if I'd call it strong two partyism right. in that, yes, they might, they're going to get, it looks like a very significant proportion of the vote, but strong two partyism makes it sound quite stable, like mm. it'll last over time. I don't think we should expect that. We could easily have another election like 2015. Yeah. So yeah. I think, I think in this election, it, the dynamics have turned such that Scotland's already happened. So we're not, I mean, last, when, when, when uh, the SNP swept across Scotland and took 56 of 59 seats, we suddenly said, what's happened to the two main parties? We've all got used to that now. Um, but, you know, they're still there. Yeah, I'd also say that the, the Tory party in Scotland is an example of the resilience of party brands. I mean, way more than Labour in England, Scotland was, um, the Tories in Scotland were absolutely, you know, poisonous and, and they look set to... to win, well, though, to, I think to what's, going on, what's going on in Scotland is it's Ruth Davidson, it's not the Conservatives that's doing well. well I know, but that's just, you, you get the right leader and True. you can turn that it's, turn a party around. It's the issue too, isn't it? It's sure. unionism. You sure. need a party that's recognised to be strongly unionist with Ruth Davidson. Yeah. One other question. Do, do we overstate the influence of campaigns? I mean, do they make the blindest bit of difference? They give us a lot of excitement well, on the way. I would not, but then this one seems to be. Yeah. I think it's really difficult to study. If you think about how elections... You shouldn't do it, Rosie. Well, <laughs> to study the job. influence of campaigns, you need to look at this incremental daily effect. And obviously there are campaign tracking polls and so on. But actually, to really get into the nuance, um, in short, I'd say they do matter. But a lot of us, you know, a significant group of the population, start the election knowing who we're going to vote for. And that you know they bring that bring that with them, but that group's declined massively over time. Well, it's still in the balance for me. Oh, actually, I don't get a vote, so it's not in the balance for me. Oh, no, yeah, I can't vote. Yeah. I'm disenfranchised. Yeah, it's probably a good thing. Yeah. Okay, Rosie, thank you very much. That was fantastic. Thank you for having thank me. Thank you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. We end our shows, as you know, with a rant or rave. Uh, this week, Ian has got a rant to do with the response to the terrible terror attack in Manchester. Ian. Yeah, I, I just want to spend uh, a few minutes talking about the debate around terrorism and foreign policy that uh, has ensued after that the awful attack uh, in Manchester. Um, the attack triggered this depressingly predictable political argument. So Jeremy Corbyn suggested that UK foreign policy was one of the attack's underlying causes. And the Tories then accused him of blaming Britain instead of the terrorists. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like we're stuck in a loop on terrorism uh, in, in political terms. And I find the standard positions on left and right deeply unsatisfactory. On the right, you hear people saying or implying that it's the fault of the Muslim community. On the kind of, that's the kind of hard right response, and sometimes the sort of Daily Mail response. Well, if you think that, then congratulations, because you've been radicalised. That's exactly what ISIS wants you to think and say. In fact, their explicit stated strategy is to get you to say that. So you're just a tool, right, in more ways than one. <laughs> and the other tactic of the right is to act shocked when anyone even mentions historical or political causes. So how dare you even try to say anything about this vile atrocity, except that it's a vile atrocity? Well, apart from anything else, if you think Manchester was nothing to do with ideology or geopolitics, then it's not terrorism, is it? It's just murder. But nobody believes that. Nobody says that. So of course it's a political act, albeit a deranged and evil one. And if this attack was organised by ISIS, as it seems to have been, then we need to discuss how to defeat ISIS. And you can't do that without understanding its origins and the governance vacuum left by the Iraq war. You can't do that without understanding the forces at play in the Middle East, of which Western foreign policy is one, right? It's just one of the forces, but it is one of the forces at play there. So I think the standard left position isn't much better. Jeremy Corbyn says UK foreign policy, especially the Iraq war, has increased the risk of terrorism. Okay, Fair point to make. But then his analysis kind of stops. The only principle seems to be, don't do anything that raises the risk of terrorism. But you can't conduct a foreign policy on that basis. If you do, you're effectively giving terrorists the power to determine our foreign policy. You're also creating bigger problems down the line. So until recently, ISIS wasn't very interested in overseas attacks. It was focused on what it calls the near enemy, right? It was focused on securing territory in the Middle East. It's targeting the West now, in part, in large part, because Western forces have played a part in stopping its expansion. So ISIS has been forced out of its strongholds in Mosul and, and Raqqa. Its funding is being cut off. The flow of fighters from overseas has, has gone right down, um, in partly because its success has been stopped, so it's sort of lost momentum. It's being weakened at home, so it's lashing out over here. Now, if you're Jeremy Corbyn, would you rather the opposite was happening? Would you rather have a lower risk of terrorism in the UK, but a bigger, more powerful, expanding ISIS in the Middle East? Now, I'm not saying there's an easy answer to this. Um, and in fact, my whole point is that there isn't an easy answer. I just think the left's habit of saying, let's just leave well alone and pray for peace is short-sighted and dangerous. The right's instinct to avoid any discussion of foreign policy at all in relation to this question is blinkered. 
And none of the politicians are introducing fresh thinking on our strategy in the Middle East. None of them are talking about the nitty gritty of the decisions we face at home on surveillance, community relations, uh, on information sharing between the police and security forces. And the whole thing is a bit depressing. End of rant. Anyway, Stuart, what do you think? Am I being too hard on the politicians? No, I think that was well said. I agree with almost all of that. I think one of the things that's going on the right is there is a worry that if somehow they even concede a little bit there is a link between UK military action abroad and terrorism, that somehow it will, it will invalidate the case for UK military action. But as you say, things are more complex than that. It, it's probably true that there is a link. I'm almost certain there is a link. But it's not the only consideration either in explaining terrorism or in counter, countervailing considerations for whether we should go to war abroad. It reminds me of the Labour debate about spending. Labour used to get in this position, I was involved in this too, of saying there's absolutely no, no way in which we overspent. The, the true position is we probably spent a little bit too much here and there, but it wasn't the thing that explained the crash or our dire economic position after 2008. But Labour couldn't concede a little bit to get to the truth. I feel the right has got that problem on terrorism. It, it's surely true that there is a link. But conceding the link doesn't concede everything the right worry about. And I think you're right on the left as well. I think the idea that somehow this is a sufficient explanation of terrorism is clearly ridiculous and ahistorical and wrong. Yep. Okay. We agree on the rant. We agree on the rant. That's amazing. Thank you for listening. And remember to rate us on iTunes and tell your friends. And we'll see you... In the, the new world. Oh, yeah, the other side of the election. Bye.